0: Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you but it also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Great to know that you're back as we continue in our series on the second half of world history, where we're going to get closer and closer to the brink, of course, to the largest conflict in world history, both in terms of human lives, the most important element of any historical situation, episode, call it what you want, as well as, of course, in terms of money. In the previous episode uh, and podcast, episode 21, we looked at the various factors that were leading to a destabilized World War I economy. We examined the war debts primarily paid from Germany. We saw the way that the Tsar Basin and the Ruhr Valley, those prime economic hotspots for Germany, were taken over by France. We looked, of course, at the way, and no surprise had anxiety lingered throughout European society. We discussed the rise of Nazi Germany, the Nazi Party, excuse me, in Germany, especially by 1932. We saw that when a German president, Paul von Hindenburg, died prior to that appointing Hitler chancellor, that Hitler c- combined the office of the presidency with the office of the chancellery into one, something again that was allowed in the Weimar Constitution. From there we see that after Hitler's uh, rise to sole ruler, what he was going to do now, in effect, is what we're going to begin to see here and discuss here in our 22nd podcast and our last one before the outbreak of what becomes known as the Second World War. Please note, that if nothing more that is garnered from this podcast, if nothing more that you learned, it's no fault of any student. But sadly, the way the average student walks out of a high school history class, world history class, American history, you name it, when World War II is discussed, is by and large, what's examined is, the damage that is done by Adolf Hitler, and he wasn't alone, Mussolini, Stalin, and yes, even the United States and our leaders clearly had some dark marks on their record for things that were done, of course, to Japanese Americans on top of Native Americans prior to that and at the same time. But what I what is oftentimes lost when teaching about Hitler's rise to sole ruler as well as to the eventual outbreak of World War II, to the beginning of the Holocaust, is sadly that Hitler was a master at taking baby steps. He was a master of testing the waters. And I, some of you listening may, you know, recoil at that saying, oh no, Hitler, the Hitler I was introduced to, he could care less what people thought. He was running Roughshod. No, that's the Hitler that was too late to do anything about right away. But prior to his getting there, what I want if nothing more for you to be able to understand is that by the time the Holocaust, as we know it and define it begins, this is a series of events that started with incrementally small steps. And again, I use the term baby steps. Same thing with World War II. A common way that I'll gauge where my students are at is I will throw out a true-false question saying that Hitler began to acquire territory that was not his starting on September 1st, 1939 with the outbreak of World War II. The average student says, oh, true. No. Hitler had already acquired so much territory before World War II even broke out. Where then, do you ask or wonder, were international leaders? Why didn't they step in? That's what we're going to take a look at. This is part of the record, which is oftentimes glossed over or ignored in the average academic institution. So when we're going to begin, we're going to start a course by with the isolation of the German Jews. Please note that in terms of isolating the Jews, it was based on biology, not religion. Hitler's hang up was with the biological makeup as he interpreted, of the Jews. His internal hatred of the Jewish community, as we saw in discussing Hitler's, literally his infancy and his youth, the fact that, again, he could have had a male relative that possibly was Jewish, meaning that Hitler might have had some Jewish blood, which now is is almost impossible to prove. So when Hitler goes after the Jews, he is using them largely as a scapegoat. But that was not his ultimate political objective. Hitler's top priority had nothing to do with the Holocaust. It had everything to do with military and politics, as we'll see in this podcast, and later on we'll discuss further. However, using the Jews as a scapegoat for German problems helped instill the fear in German society that if we get rid of this group of people, our problems will go away. So when Hitler starts with the isolation of the Jews, again, the Holocaust, the moment Hitler combines the office of the chancellery with the office of the presidency to become the Fuhrer, the Holocaust doesn't immediately stop. start there. He starts again with tiny steps. He first starts excluding any Jew from holding a government position or a civil service job. When that mandate is then sent throughout Germany, Hitler also, sadly, was smart enough to gauge what the reaction was from the community. What were the German citizens thinking in the north and in the south, east and west? When he didn't anticipate or see any resistance, he then upped it, So we won't go from exclusion from civil service jobs, we then boycott Jewish owned businesses, keeping German business to ethnic Germans as Hitler had said. Once again, no international or domestic repercussions from this. He then inches forward and renounces citizenship as starting in 1935. This is also when Hitler designed a, tried to design a plan and implement it to take German Jews and ship them off the continent of Europe down to the southeastern south coast of Africa at a large island called Madagascar, a largely difficult island to live on where almost all of the world's natural vanilla comes from. It's also home to some of the oddest geological forms one might ever see. For example, the rocks there are so sharp that literally just brushing those rocks against your ankle, if you were to try to climb them, could cut you right to the bone. There is a specific type of gecko lizard that lives in that island called the Blade Runner because it can actually run across the sharp surfaces of these rocks by taking its toes and pressing on both sides of the rock, but never grabbing it enough, far enough, to where it could slit its foot. Again, found no other area in the world other than Madagascar. The cost was prohibitive, though, for Hitler to attempt to move ahead with that plan. So, he attempts to try, to try tie their hands even further After the citizenship is renounced, and this is when we begin to see a mass exodus of German Jews to get out of not only Germany, but in some cases to get out of and off of the European continent. He then upped the ante by barring Jews from any kind of enrollment in an academic institution or trade school. So he's also shutting off their future. When Again, no domestic reprisals against this were on the horizon when there was no international repercussions, largely to speak of. That's when Hitler physically then started moving ahead by forming what we'll eventually call the ghettos, and then the two types of camps that are not the same thing, the extermination camps and the concentration camps. Two different types of camps that we will talk about in a later podcast. By doing this, Hitler was able to move ahead with his sick idea that maybe I, the Führer of Germany, can create basically an Aryan race dovetailing with the thesis from that of Charles Darwin called survival of the fittest, which again was not a was a phrase that Darwin did not coin, but the idea that the Aryan race, blond-haired, blue-eyed, would be the most fit to survive. It is for these reasons, which a lot of my, oftentimes my students are very surprised, is the reason why Germans, German non-Jews also could be sent to ghettos, concentration, and extermination camps. And you could be an ethnic German. You could be a blonde-haired, blue-eyed German and be sent to these camps. Number one, if you have any kind of proof, if there's any proof that you're fighting the war effort, and that you're an eventual war effort, that you're fighting Hitler's ideology, that you're fighting his programs and his agenda, you could be sent there. But you could also be sent there if you had any kind of physical or mental disability. This is part of the reason why, for example, no interracial marriage would be allowed the longer Hitler was in office. He also wanted to try this idea of the sterilization of the unfit. So in other words, an individual that might have a minor physical disability, but could certainly be used in the war effort, well, no use killing that person when we could perhaps sterilize them so that if they had kids, so if they, through intercourse, had kids, that would be prevented. Now, what I'm sharing with you probably is no surprise to the average listener, both within the United States and my international listeners, but what sometimes my students are aghast is when I ask, where might Hitler in the mid to late 1930s have come across this idea of sterilization of the unfit? And oftentimes, when I'll, if, I, if I have the time in the class, class period, I'll ask them to see if they could uh, think of a country or world leader that might have given them the idea. And it's interesting the way students will say, maybe it came from Mussolini in Italy or Stalin in the Soviet Union. But in my 20 plus years teaching at the college level, nobody has ever guessed the country where sterilization of the unfit had already been going on for years, and that is none other than the United States of America. For my domestic listeners, I know this is hard on the ears, and this is the reason why I encourage you right now to go ahead and pause this podcast and look up this term on YouTube. It's called Fixed to Fail. That's what I ask you to, to take a look at. Fixed to Fail. It's only about four minutes. It's largely only music in the background, but read those words. I sadly am getting chills right now, and I've seen this video countless times because my students in uh, in my three sections of history that I teach, I make darn sure that they see that video. Essentially, for those that might not have access to the Internet right now for purposes of searching other than through this podcast, or you don't have time to look at it, Fixed to fail was about as a summary of the hugely negative impact of the Supreme Court case called Buck versus Bell. Buck versus Bell was the case where Carrie Buck had brought a lawsuit because she was sterilized against her will. Now let's back up and unpack the the events that lead up to Carrie's lawsuit. Carrie was born in an institution for the mentally impaired. Why was her mother there? Because that's where her mother was born. Okay, then why was Carrie's grandmother there? Because Carrie's grandmother's parents, Carrie's great-grandparents had a child that definitely had mental disabilities and was introduced to an asylum for the mentally impaired. That grandmother had a child, Carrie's mother. Carrie's mother had a child, of course, Carrie. So Carrie, who's still in the institution in her early teenage years, remembers waking up with severe abdominal pain. And she looked down and was horrified to feel and see a scar because she was during the night, had a napkin over her face to make her pass out, was then brought into a surgical to an operating room where she was sterilized against her will. This is by now getting into the 1920s. So therefore, Pro bono, she had a set of lawyers that sued the state of Virginia for attempting to fix this woman, as they called fix, hence the term fixed to fail. But they also brought the suit because times have changed. Carrie was able to prove that she was more than an important individual that could contribute to society. She was just as important as anybody else and no less important than anybody else. She was fit literally to survive. So she tested out of the institution and was released, but that was after the forced sterilization. So with that, she finds that she again was sterilized against her will. The lawyers sue in a state of local, local court where they unfortunately lose. They appeal to that decision, they lose at the appellate level. Then they say, wait a minute, Carrie, don't be discouraged. We're gonna appeal to the United States Supreme Court and the Supreme Court took her case. Now mind you, the Supreme Court gets over 7,000 petitions a year to hear cases. They only take between 90 and 110. It is not true in the United States that you have a right to be heard at the Supreme Court. That is not true. You have a right to appeal you do not have the right to be heard. You cannot demand that. Kerry's case, however, was grabbed with by both arms by the United States Supreme Court. And it was there that Kerry's lawyers once again defended her case and made her case known. And now the international community was watching. The decision was handed down from the United States Supreme Court against carry and in favor of the institution as sickening as the decision or the verdict was to add true true insult to already bad injury was one of the greatest legal minds of the united states supreme court none other than oliver wendell holmes holmes was a legal genius holmes also was sadly a product of his time that was not exactly the most open-minded man on the court. And as a result, he not only wrote the decision defending the majority who ruled in favor of the institution, who ruled against Kerry, he not only defends them, he, Holmes, not only defends the institution, he basically writes in his decision literally these words, Quote, three generations of imbeciles is enough. End quote. Even though Kerry had tested out of the institution, Oliver Wendell Holmes was still calling her an imbecile. There's no other way to interpret that. This Supreme Court case results landed on Hitler's desk. He reviewed this even though, again, it didn't happen right at that time as Hitler's at the top of his power. But the history of this case, he definitely researched. From there, this idea, and again, it wasn't just Germany that was engaging in sterilization of the unfit. It wasn't just the United States. But the United States was clearly one of the pioneers. Because of this, oftentimes, my students are aghast to realize that Oliver Wendell Holmes clearly was calling Carrie, Carrie's mother and Carrie's grandmother idiots. The modern term for imbeciles, an idiot. And that's what he's calling. That's what he called them. It's in the court record. I show my students the word. I don't want them thinking I'm paraphrasing. I don't want to think I'm misremembering. That's even a word. I want them to see with their own eyes those words by Oliver Wendell Holmes. Now, as we move on. I have to ask a question, of course, which nobody can answer, but I'm going to ask my listening audience the same question that I ask my students. Anybody wondering how Carrie's mother got pregnant or Carrie's grandmother, for that matter? Yeah, you're thinking, you're so, oh, I never, I never thought of that, did you? Yeah, I didn't know. Like, Carrie's grandmother must have got married in the institution, huh? Wow. No, she wasn't married. She wasn't married any more than Carrie's mother was married. Carrie's mother was born as a result of her her mother, of Carrie's grandmother, being repeatedly raped and then had a child. Carrie's mother was repeatedly raped and had a child, Carrie. Carrie, who at that point in her early teenage years thought, okay, this woman's becoming of age. She's going to be in here the rest of her life like her mother. We can't have that again. So we're going to sterilize her. Rather than making sure the girl is not raped, they simply sterilize her. So again, don't take what I'm telling you here to my word for it. Please go look at that video and countless other information on that called "Fixed to Fail," the Supreme 1929 Supreme Court case of Buck versus Bell. B-U-C-K versus Bell. B-E-L-L. Along those lines. So in terms of again Hitler's foundation for the creation of the Aryan race number 1 was to eliminate interracial marriage also no marriage with anybody that would have a physical that had a physical or mental disability two sterilization of the unfit and there was a third one and that was loans with low to no interest for early marriage as well as for tax breaks remember again the significant portion or the percentage of European society, specifically young males, that was killed as a result of World War I. This is Hitler as well as Mussolini's efforts to try to get couples to get married sooner and to have kids sooner by offering again tax breaks and low interest or no interest loans for the purposes of purchasing a house, etc. So this is, again, as Hitler is in power, he starts his, his agenda, his sick agenda of the isolation of the German Jews simultaneously with his agenda of creating the Aryan race. Now, what about his economy? Oftentimes students are questioning. Does that actually improve with Adolf Hitler or was that a myth? Absolutely not. It improved. The economy under Hitler skyrocketed. It beyond strengthened for various reasons. Number one is that the republic works in government spending. If you don't believe that works, then Franklin Roosevelt would never have been a four-term president. Forcing the government to spend money through loans that it can borrow in order to create different public works through government spending helps to put people back at work. You have your payroll taxes now, you have money coming back into the coffers. Overall, the appearance of the country was also improving. But please note, all of this was being done by Hitler in a silent preparation for war. To the point that if anybody would mistakenly thought that Hitler's pedal to the floor was 100% just to get Germans back to work and pay off that World War I debt, think again. Because strikes and collective bargaining wouldn't be allowed. Leaders of those collective bargaining and unions could find themselves tortured and killed if they attempted to recruit or attempted to intervene on behalf of the employees. The labor front, an organization that provided vacations and recreational activities. So for this reasons, the average German wasn't really discouraged that unions and collective bargaining were fallen by the wayside. They had these things now called guaranteed vacation time and recreational activities. As a result, class levels as Hitler stayed in power slowly disappeared as Germany physically, economically, politically, all was strengthening. You might ask, what then was the international response to all of this, specifically the United States. Well, to put this into perspective, mind you that Hitler attempting to try to exterminate the Jews was already in place now by the late 1930s for years. His ability to try to create the Aryan race going on again for years. Yet by 1939, 1938, that time period, Adolf Hitler, and I ask you to ask the question what was America's response to Adolf Hitler's efforts, to Adolf Hitler, the man? The response literally can be understood. I can read to you paragraphs and pages from all types of books about the American response, or I can simply give you these two facts that you can look up and prove that, yes. Hitler. America was so proud of the efforts of Adolf Hitler that he was not only nominated, but actually made the 1938 Time Magazine's Man of the Year. Look it up. The Man of the Year for 1938 and if you think that's bad that he got that hitler got the 1938 nod, look up 1939 while you're at it in fact throw in 1941 too as well and you'll see that the other man that was nominated in 39 and in 41 was another ruthless dictator that of joseph stalin you think by the night by 1941 the time magazine would have got out of the business of trying to nominate somebody for a person of the year that said if you is occasionally a student that say, yeah, but you know, maybe they, they, they didn't see all the facts, maybe this, maybe that, consider this. If you don't want to use the man of the year as to proof positive of America's response to Adolf Hitler at this time, believe it or not, he was also nominated to receive the 1939 Nobel Peace Prize. When I share this with my students, you can hear a pin drop. They had no idea that that was the international reaction to Adolf Hitler's efforts. You see, again, Hitler was taking all of his destructive efforts and was going so slowly that it was falling under most people's radars. And for those that it did hit the radar, well, maybe a little bit of Machiavelli entered their mind where the end justifies the means. And please remember, for those not familiar with the Nobel Prize, to win the Nobel Peace Prize, I literally would like to read to you the one sentence definition of an individual worthy of the Nobel Peace Prize. Quote, those who during the preceding year shall have conferred the greatest benefit to mankind. End quote. I'm going to read that one more time and make sure you heard me right in case you turned up the radio or turned up the volume here. Quote, those who during the preceding year shall have conferred the greatest benefit to mankind. End quote. That ladies and gentlemen is your Nobel prize that was supposed to go to Adolf Hitler in 1939. Because war broke out, no prizes were awarded that year. So that, ladies and gentlemen, is the Adolf Hitler that I'm introducing you to from infancy in those prior podcasts, to his teenage years, to his young adult years, and now as the Fuhrer of Germany, stepping on the edge of one of the greatest calamities in all of world history, what will be known as the Second World War. And that's what we'll begin with in the next podcast. That said, a quick update on the Soviet Union, at this time under the leadership of the successors to Vladimir Lenin, that of Joseph Stalin, that industrially, they were actually outpacing Europe, but the cost in human lives was astronomical. Remember that the Soviet Union was also partnered with Adolf Hitler and Germany from the Rapallo Act, because I'm sure what was going through your minds too is, hey, what about Hitler How did he get that economy booming? What exactly was he building? What was the corporate Germany actually making? Instruments of war. No, 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 they couldn't have, Chris, you say, because the Treaty of Versailles prevented Hitler from making things like fighter planes, tanks, and other weapons. Exactly. It didn't say that Hitler and Germany can't make the parts. So the parts to these war machines were made then shipped into the Soviet Union, where they were assembled. Once again, Hitler sadly mastering his ability to manipulate those treaties of Versailles, which were attempting to corner and crush the country of Germany. Crush Germany was what it attempted to do, beginning with the next podcast We're going to see how Germany is going to crush almost all of Europe. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsolid.com. Email me with any questions you might have. If you like what we discussed today as well, please leave me a review. Thanks again for listening. Have a great remainder of your day.